Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to discuss our hardware antics for the week. We ask the question, are SSDs as reliable as spinning disks? And we finally head to the popular camera corner with Wendy, where we're going to discuss dynamic range. All of this and more coming up. So sit back, relax, and plug in, because Hardware Addicts starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, a resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, along with Michael, the software sage, and hardware padawan. So let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this week. Michael, tell me you did something good with hardware. I set up my router. Yes. Yeah. How are you liking your router now that you finally took it out of its box and showed it some affection? Okay, yes. Uh, We hugged and uh, it was was (laughs) glorious. Uh, But there's a couple things about it. I actually, once I completely threw away the stupid, worthless genie installer thing that they have where it's like Mm, trying to make it easy to use but it's just a garbage thing and use the regular setup like a normal person it was really good like once i got past that part it was a solid setup and i've had a little bit of issues but i think it's because my ethernet cable is like a cat five and i don't think i have i I think i have higher internet speed than i than the cat five can handle so uh, I'm going to switch. I haven't switched it out yet, but I'm going to switch it to a Cat 6. I did buy those. Those have came in, and I've not taken it out. Really? Of the they're yet. sitting there all by themselves saying, please take us out of the package and just, put us to use? out of the cable. Just yeah, it, it has. Okay. You could have done that Baby instead of steps, gaming people. before we recorded, Michael. We could have, but then we wouldn't have gamed. Therefore. That's true. So <laughs> what have you been doing, Ryan? Well, I was watching... Today, in fact, the day we're recording that the PlayStation 5 did their big reveal of their console. And, well, it looks like, I don't know, the controller. It looks just like the controller. Have you seen the new PS5 controller? It's mm-hmm. kind of futuristic, a little bit of curvature, not as angular as the PS4 was. And so they did their big reveal and it was kind of like, eh, because the Xbox one series x now that i got through that sentence that one is (laughs) like a cube and it looks really cool right because you could see in a home entertainment system how a cube would would be kind of a perfect right fit oh yeah it's like it's like a game cube wow yeah you're right (laughs) they really didn't come up with that first did they but so xbox came out with the cube design which i think is unique and looks cool the PlayStation 5 just, you know, it doesn't look great, but that's not important, right? It's about the games. It's about what's inside. And, of course, we covered right. this in detail about their hardware. But I was really disappointed in the game showing as well. And maybe I need to watch it again. Might have been just in a bad mood. But a lot of the games I was watching, I just kept thinking, that looks fun, you know, but it looks like I could play that on the PlayStation 4 just fine. Doesn't look like it was worth the upgrade or would be worth the upgrade. You would think, because when I remember getting the original Xbox 360, I think, and when I brought it home and turned it on and put a couple of the games in, I remember actually being blown away 
by the graphics of the games. Like, wow, this is definitely next gen. And since then, everything has just been such an iterative upgrade. And they're really not pushing. The software really hasn't caught up to the hardware, I feel like, in in pushing the graphics to a new level. And maybe that's where things like virtual reality and stuff really come into play. Because from a graphic yeah. standpoint and the games they were showing, I mean, there were a couple graphical games, but again, I feel like, yeah, I could play it on the PlayStation 4. Maybe have 10, 15 seconds more load time, but it, I could still play it just fine. Do you really need a PlayStation 5? you really need this next Xbox? I don't know. Not based on what I'm seeing. Not based on the current graphics that are available in the great games. Yeah. So, Wendy, what have you been up to? Well, after the episode where we talked about putting Lineage OS on the Fire tablets, I couldn't help myself. I had to do it. And over the years, I have done a whole lot of rooting and ramen. And and I have to tell you, this was one of the more interesting getting the bootloader unlocked and getting the ROM installed than I've ever done because it involved causing a short for a couple seconds. Really? That's pretty (laughs) awesome. (laughs) So it's on all of the kids' tablets. All of the kids are running Lineage OS right now. And I asked my daughter, my oldest, what she's thought of the chain. And she says, Mom, it's so much usable. It's so much faster than it was before. And... I still have control over their tablets, but it has definitely made them far more versatile. And it's still this tablet that I'm not as worried about about sales, right? When I bought these, I bought them on sale for 50 bucks. So So you took the Amazon Fire tabs that you got for $50 a piece. You shorted Mm -hmm. one out in order to install... All, you shorted all four of them out <laughs> in order to override, I assume, some protection that they have. Yeah, it's, it. it's a bug that's in the system. So that short allows it to be able to work around the security feature and get the bootloader unlocked. So then you can install a custom recovery and custom ROM. That's so cool. It's it's kind of mm-hmm. it's cool, but it's also kind of amazing that just the idea that people <laughs> found this out like. How do we how do we replace this terrible operating system? Let's short it. Like what? Let's short it. So I've videoed the whole thing. So I have video of what I did on the hardware side and video of what I did in the terminal because nice. this is something that has to be done on a Linux system in the terminal. I've got nice. them both. There will be a video in the show notes of exactly how I did it. Wow, that sounds That's awesome. Very cool. Mm-hmm. So back in the day. In order to, if you received a motherboard that had a was password protected, the BIOS, and you couldn't get into it, there was a way you could short the motherboard out so that it would bypass the BIOS. It was super secure. And that's that was kind of <laughs> when you were saying that, it was taking me back to my dad showing me that in the shop. Like, all right, here's how we're going to get into this thing. We're going to short it out. And it was quite a fun experience as a kid. Yeah. For sure. You should have seen the look on my husband's face when I told him. Well, I took this paper clip and he's like, you what? That's a, that's a bad <laughs> thing, isn't it? You know, because <laughs> when he's working on the electrical wiring of a truck or a trailer, that that's not something he's wanting done. It's not a bad thing. <laughs> it's so <laughs> it's so awesome that you were willing to do that, that you, you saw that and you weren't like, no, I'm not going to do that. It could break something. You're like, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it four times and boom. 
There you go. Absolutely. If, if it doesn't work the first time, I have three more chances. Exactly. Right. I mean, it's definitely one of those things that is take at your own risk because, you know, there's no guarantee if you destroy your tablet following a process like that and ruin it. No one's buying you a new one except for you. So while it was very successful for me and I'm so glad I did it, be forewarned. The instructions are there, but take it at your own risk. There you go. This episode of Hardware Addicts and the entire Destination Linux network is now sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. You can get all this plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. Or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. As Ryan would say, that's darn near free. DigitalOcean has over 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and framework. Get started on DigitalOcean for two months free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash dln. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that $100 credit by going to do.co slash dln. All right, so let's get into our core story this week, and we're going to do a continuation off of last week in which we told Michael we were finally going to answer his question this week, but then we decided why do that when we could make Michael wait again? Perfect. It's fun to make Michael wait. Yes. Yeah, of course. It's awesome. I. I'm so happy that we're like, he's like, yeah, we're going to talk about it. Like, awesome. Eventually. Eventually. You just keep waiting. I I understand the need to add information and context before getting to a certain topic. Yeah, that's that's fair. It's just get to it already. Well, (laughs) next week for sure for reals this time. You mean in two weeks? Yeah, in two weeks. Yeah. Two more weeks is all you have to wait. So you got to wait two more weeks. Perfect. I I can do it. I can do it. Well, we're going to build upon this because to this day, I come across people who still resist upgrading the storage on their machines based on the assumption that SSDs are not as reliable as the long and trusted spinning drives. I had a specific situation recently where an individual is like, hey, can you help me shop for a laptop? And I'm like, sure. What are you going to do with it? And they went through their long list. And so we started looking at some options. And I said, and this one's got an SSD in it. Oh, I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want to lose my data. What are you talking about? I don't want to lose my data. I've heard horrible things about SSDs. I want nothing to do with it. And I was kind of shocked, but I've heard it more and more often. There's a, this long standing idea that SSDs just don't hold up as well as the spinning drive. Have any of you heard this? Yeah. That's I mean, I not heard something it, like- I've ran into. I've heard it like 10 years ago when it actually was true, but that was also because it was like, not 10 years ago, I don't know when it was, but it was like the first year SSDs came out, they were problematic because they were brand new and the technology was new. But that was also at least a decade ago. Yeah. Today is a continuation of our discussion from last week on NVMe and M2s. We're going to dig into this lifespan of the storage formats so that we can do some myth busting in case you come across this. Sounds like, Michael, you used to hear it, Wendy, you've never heard it, and I unfortunately have heard it recently, and no matter how much I tried to convince the person that, hey, I'm every machine I have is SSD now, and I've not had right. a failure, 
They weren't buying it. They wanted that spinning drive. You know how hard it is to find a current laptop with a spinning disc? You got to go pretty cheap, not the opposite, yeah. right? You can't spend a lot of money because none of the expensive ones have a spinning drive. Have, well, not a lot. Yeah. yeah, naturally. It's like, I want I want the best hardware except this one piece. I don't want the best. <laughs> what? <laughs> now, no matter what, when we go through this, we are going to give a PSA here that no matter what solution you choose, you're going to need to back up your data. I don't care if you're a, you're one of those people who are going to leave in the comments, spinning drive for life. That's fine. Spinning drive for life. Use a spinning <laughs> drive, but you still need to back it up because no solution is yes. 100% and no manufacturing process is perfect. So you can go on Amazon and get that five-star Samsung SSD that everybody loves and you just happen to get the one that dies four days after you put the most important information ever on it. It can happen. When I was doing the research, I found this one uh, phrase that I like and I'm totally going to take and it's mine now. It's the doing the backup <laughs> process. It's the three, two, one process where if you have three backups, you actually have two. If you have two backups, you actually have one. And if you only have one copy, then you have none. Mm-hmm. And that's a good policy. You basically, you need at least three in order, three copies of something in order to actually have it backed up. Cause if you only have one backup and both drives, you know, are in the same location or whatever, there's, there's a possibility that you could lose both at the same time. So have as many backups as possible. There's you, there's just like there's no you can't have too much hardware. You can't have too many backups. It's very true. I mean, some of the Absolutely. data recoveries that I've had to do were because people had a fire in their home and they did back up, but their backups were also in their home and they got burned up and we would do recovery on them to get different photos and things like we talked about last week a little bit. But it's it's a major problem because even the people who do backups, they don't think about what if something offsite backup? Exactly. You have to have something offsite, whether you're using the cloud or you store stuff on drive. And we'll get into archival storage, which is what Michael wants the answer to finally in two <laughs> weeks. Perfect. So endurance or survivability of any device can vary based on environmental elements as well. So, for instance, with no moving parts, an SSD can be jostled around more than a spinning drive, obviously where that kind of movement, say in a laptop, can cause damage more easily with a spinning disk than it's going to be with an SSD that doesn't have moving parts. But what about Which is my the hipster- issue that my sister-in-law got into is dropped a laptop that had a spinning disk in it, and of course that jostle, that jolt, damaged the spinning disk. But I, I but I heard that there's this hipster tough drive where it's mechanical. So like, is that not a thing? I asked sarcastically. Hipster, are you talking about where they put the rubber padding <laughs> around the spinning drive, so therefore now it's immune to everything? Yeah, it's not even it's not even rubber padding around the drive. It's rubber padding around the case. The oh, case, perfect. The drive yeah. in the case is really, just a case. <laughs> it's and it's also like it also looks disgusting. It's like this gray case with a orange rubber thing around it, and it's like it's not even touching the drive. And I saw people were like this. There was this video where this guy was talking about how he lost his data. And he says, and he's, he's holds that he's holding one of those tough cases or tough drives and he's like shaking it around. And then he like throws it on the table and he get, and, he, and the guy and somebody in the comment says, I figured out how you lost your data. You have those <laughs> and you're throwing them around and be, of course you're going to destroy it if you're just throwing them around and being them on your table. Well, it's kind of sad because yeah, you see you. this in corporate America all the time. I see people getting on elevators with their laptops kind of hanging out, and then they'll walk outside while it's raining with their laptop still open when they get off the elevator and just walk out like, 
they think they're invulnerable to everything, to all the elements. And then you see them toss them on their passenger seat. And the way people treat these things, they act like they're Panasonic tough books, which even if you have one of those, you really don't want to purposefully treat it that way. It, it can take a lot of movement, but it's not made for that. And even with the SSDs, while we say that, yeah, jostling them around for a spinning drive is bad. If you're in a moisture heavy environment, or you're just knocking things around and dropping it. I mean, they can still break. They can still snap. They're still boards. They're not perfect, and they're not. Uh, they're not a black box from an airplane, right? You you can break this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Treat with care. Treat with care. But you know the reason why hard disks that you were talking about, Wendy, had an issue when it was being jostled around heavily is because they consist of these magnetic sensitive platters inside. There's an actuator arm with a read-write head for each of the platters and a motor inside that spins all that. There's I.O. controller, firmware that tells the hardware what to do, communicate with the system. But I'm actually wanting to challenge both of you that the next time you come across Ooh. an inexpensive spinning disc, whether you have to buy one, you see one on Goodwill, your friend's giving it away because you're upgrading to open it up and take it apart because it's really a beautiful thing inside. Have either of you ever opened one up? I haven't. I've looked at pictures of them opened up, right. but I've never opened one up myself. Same here. I've seen videos of people doing it, but I've never done it myself. Because they're made in such a perfect environment, because anything gets on that platter, it pretty much can damage it, scratch it, and destroy it. It almost has to be this perfect sealed environment in order to... In fact, some of the hard drive repair, we have to have an environment that has a vacuum inside of, you know, an encasement to make sure there's no dust that gets anywhere near when we're swapping platters, basically a clean room, so that nothing gets on there. But it's so perfect, the mirror of these discs and the arm and the way it actuates and moves and things is just so beautiful. It's definitely one of those things where I highly recommend if you get your hands on one to take it apart because it's amazing technology. Never want to put that technology down because what it was able to accomplish was absolutely fantastic. We used them yeah. for so many years and they got smaller mm-hmm. and smaller and smaller. I still use them a little bit for like like some some of my storage, but uh, that's just because they have like gigantic amount of space. Yeah, you can get yeah, them relatively inexpensive, right? Yeah, yeah they're exactly. relatively expensive for the amount of terabytes that you can have on OneDrive. So if you have lots of stuff that needs to be backed up and still have access to it. Spinning rust is absolutely fantastic for that. Yeah, nothing wrong with it, except I actually have one running right now on the Synology NAS, and it's so loud I wish I had turned it off before I started recording because they are loud because they spin up and, you know, they they make a lot, they can can make a lot of noise. Obviously, it depends on the versions that you get and the encasement that you have in it, but that mechanical stuff wears out, and that makes sense. And solid-state drives very different. They use flash memory. They deliver better performance. I don't think that's really debatable. Their durability, depending on the type of durability you're talking about, is generally better because you don't have mechanical parts. They use less energy, but it can still be impacted by things like heat. And it also has this thing that a lot of people will quote about SSD, that there's a limit to how many times a block can be written. And that creates a lot of problems with basically wear leveling across the drive. But there's been so many mitigations to this point. This is kind of going back to what Michael was saying at the very beginning. He had heard they were unreliable. And this has a lot to do with this area here. Um, The newer drives definitely do much better in mitigating that. Now, there's still a limit. 
but it's not overriding the same area to the point where it starts destroying data, kind of like used to happen with the first Going back to the hardware that I know best, the SSDs of today, like the cameras of today, are not the SS or cameras of 10 years ago. This technology has made a big jump in their efficiency and how long they'll last. Right, absolutely. So SSDs can be thought of just like a large USB drive. They use the same technology. You know, NAND, the technology in solid-state drives, is just a kind of flash memory and storage technology. You also hear terms like 3D NAND, VNAND, V meaning vertical. The two terms essentially mean exactly the same thing and refer to making storage more dense. And overall, SSD memory is made of teeny tiny electronic gates which change states. The data gets written on them. When these gates are written to, they hold that charge. That saves your data. All of this is fascinating, but we're not running a computer science course here. So you don't need to listen to me and my experience. I will tell you SSDs have been extremely reliable for me. Michael, you use SSDs. Have they been reliable as spinning drives for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, SSDs, I've not had any issues with these at all. I mean, I've had issues with like USB flash drives and stuff like that. But SSDs, I've had, I've even had like, you know, off-brand nonsense, super cheap ones and high-end SSDs. Well, high-end, you know, with the whole cheapness aspect, you know, <laughs> relative high-end. And it was a great experience all around every single thing. Uh, I, I usually just use the high-end bigger brands for like the operating system type stuff, but for like data storage and all that kind of thing, SSDs all the way. Like the speed alone is worth it. I'm about to change your whole perspective on buying the cheap drive here when we get uh, later into this. But Wendy, has your experience with SSDs been very similar to your experience with, of course, you use flash storage all the time in cameras. Yeah, I use them all the time in cameras. I've I've honestly never had an SD card fail in my camera. I've never had an SSD fail in my computer either. But I've also never had a spinning drive fail. I've seen them fail for, you know, dropped reasons. But as far as my desktop goes, I typically replace them at the first sign that they're aging. And so I've, I've never actually had one fail in my I've had many mechanical drives fail. And not like, you know, a ridiculous amount, but at least four and for a variety of different reasons. And I've done like these like drive tests like, where they do like a, not a benchmark, but they just scan it for like possibilities. And I've seen things yeah. where it was like, I don't know how many sectors are available, but one of the drives of the mechanical drives that I had, it said like 80% of the sectors were destroyed. It's like, Oh, oh. well, that's great. <laughs> it's like, I don't even know what it was. It's not like I, it's not like I put it in a tough case and throw it around or anything. It's just <laughs> at one point it just fell apart. Or well, whatever. you're doing it wrong. You need to throw it around. That's the whole point now. <laughs> Okay, that's that, that guarantees I get the other 20%. Yeah, exactly. Well, if you don't want to listen to us, there's been a couple of big studies done. One was in a Google data center, which, as we know, processes these ludicrous amounts of information. Tons of data. The study spanned over four years of production data collected, including the study were 10 different drive models and varying flash technologies. You've probably not heard these terms before. SLC, MLC, TLC, referring to the structure I've of flash heard TLC. memory. TLC. You have heard TLC. Okay. So yeah, TLC. <laughs> oh, oh, come on, Michael. Not the band. You're not chasing waterfalls here. <laughs> you might not be. Well, see, I thought you might have heard of TLC and MLC because those are more of your consumer grade products. And then your SLC and EMLC is real the ease for enterprise. You could appreciate that, Michael. 
sure. Yeah. Why not? Good, good naming scheme here. Yeah. Of course, you you want to make sure that you identify it correctly. So you put a small e, which could be an electronic, could be an enterprise, which you know, extreme, uh, whatever. Yeah. Or express, like like MVME does. Like I like how it's like all these different letters. Is, e I, could I mean could, anything. Express isn't MLC. Isn't it kind of weird that the only the only letters I could not, okay, this is probably not true, but for the most part. When you look at an initialism on all these te- these technology things, it's only the vowels that are lowercase. Hmm. Maybe I'm just saying things, but anyway. Well, there, there's probably a point to that. Maybe you could do the next hardware addicts and we'll skip the answer to your question on why the E is lowercase. Yeah, we'll just we'll just talk about initialisms and stuff. Fascinating. Sure. Yeah. Why not? But we'll go into the hardware branding addicts. There you go. <laughs> Well, the study concluded the following points. SSD drives were replaced at Google data centers far less often than the spinning drives with a one to four ratio. Now, SSDs did experience higher uncorrectable errors and bad blocks at a much higher rate than the spinning hard drives over the four-year test rate, but age rather than usage amount correlated to the higher rates of errors. SSDs, at the end of the day, last longer than the spinning hard drives but they were more susceptible to non-catastrophic data errors. So we're done. SSDs are faster. They're replaced less. The case is solved. Everybody just use SSDs in your data centers. Forget about the spinning drives. It's over. (laughs) That's a wrap. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the more you dig into studies, Facebook had one and other data centers, and they found a lot different variables and anomalies to all this. So the studies. After all, weren't so perfect. However, the consensus across the board is that SSDs today are far more reliable than they ever were before. The technology is only getting better. Most concede that a good SSD is just as reliable as a good spinning disk. Now you can leave your comments below for those who want their museum equipment to live on forever about how wrong I am. But that's what the studies showed. For those people, we call them curators. (laughs) Now, uh... Yeah, the museum pieces. They're, they're the curators of their museum Oh, okay. Pieces. I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> all right. So it's great to hear about all of these studies done in giant data centers. But what about consumers? How do they rate the longevity of an SSD? And this may be something you've never looked at before, but it's actually there. Everyone just looks at the read-write speeds usually, but TBW or terabytes written. And it's a metric indicated by hardware manufacturers to state how many terabytes could be written to the solid state drive during its lifetime. So there are other metrics here that you can utilize, but most consumers, TBW is what you would look for. So for example, if your hard drive has a capacity of 100 gigabytes and the drive was rated at 100 TBW, then this means that the drive can be fully rewritten 1,024 times. So if you look at a Samsung 860 Evo, very popular drive out there, it has a warrantied TBW, terabytes written, for the 860 Evo of 150 TBW for the 250 gigabyte model, 300 TBW for the 500 gigabyte model, 600 TBW for the one terabyte model. Do you see what's happening here? The bigger the drive, the more longevity you're going to get out of that drive. It goes that up. Is interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. So your large capacity SSDs, due to having more available sectors, not being rewritten over more and more as, as often as a smaller drive, a lot more room to use that if there's any failures or bad parts that it's not going to affect it overall, should last much longer 
and in a much more predictable manner. So, Michael, I remember you being on the show one time. This is a couple of years ago, and you had like a pack of six SSDs, and you're like, look at this. I got them all for $4. And what? Remotely that. No. (laughs) It was something like that. It is not. He's super exaggerating. It was four a piece, okay? But, okay, seriously, it wasn't that. It was, uh, they were all like $30, $40 or something like that. Uh, but it, or like 50 to 60 is some of them, but it, yeah, it would, they were all pretty cheap, but they weren't like super cheap. And especially like back then it probably was worse than it is now. Cause you can get like SanDisk or Crucial or Kingston or whatever. All of those things are available at reasonable sizes for like 50 bucks now. Yeah. I mean, you want to get a bigger size drive. You want to get the biggest drive that you can get in your budget. And you want to get a good quality drive, right? That's going to have a good controller that's going to be able to manage where it's writing and rewriting properly. If you get a cheap no-name drive, you know, it may have all the initial specs that a lot of consumers look at, but you're not going to get that longevity. You could have other issues down the road. The conclusion ultimately is this. You could argue advantages and disadvantages of each. Obviously, I'm pro SSD, but I know people in data centers swear by spinning disks and they've had experiences that make them swear that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Use that spinning disk. And when you're done using it, give it to somebody so they can tear it apart and look inside because they're awesome inside. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the most important thing is, you know, look for the larger drive for reliability and look for a well-made drive with a name that you can trust. Yeah, absolutely. The study suggests age is more of a concern than TBW for SSDs. The initial beginning technologies, again, had a much higher fail rate and that created fears and that compounded. But a lot of that stuff is gone now. So if you're one of those people who've just had that unnatural fear up to this point, let it go and go try a good SSD out there. And next time you're shopping for one, check out the TBW rating and see if it's worth your purchase. Yeah, and also, of course, remember backing up regardless of which one you pick, spinning or SSD, because you still need to back up always. And just real quick, I think I can give you more details about why you would want to get an SSD versus a a mechanical drive. Because I think mechanical drives are always spinning at really high speeds. So they make your data really dizzy. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Wow. I didn't see it coming, Wendy. I thought he was going to have an actual good point and then the dad joke dropped. (laughs) You're welcome. Please, Wendy, take us in the camera corner. Please. I'd be happy to. I told you last time we were going to be talking about dynamic range and gave a little bit of an explanation about what it was at the end of that last section. The best way that I can describe it is... Take your camera, whether it's your phone camera or a dedicated camera, and try to take a picture of a sunset. If you focus on and set your exposure for the sky, then the ground is going to be really dark. If you expect your, set your exposure for the ground, then the sky is going to be super bright and you're losing all of that detail in the clouds. That right there is showing you an issue with dynamic range. Your eyes can see... The detail in the clouds, the beautiful color of the sunset, it can see the shadows cast across the ground and the texture and the detail there. But our cameras are just not able to capture as much dynamic range as our eyes can. Wait, I thought you're not supposed to stare at the sun. Now you're telling me to <laughs> stare at the sun. You're not supposed to stare at the sun. Goodness <laughs> sakes, oh, you're taking okay. this That's all what the I wrong heard. way. That's what I heard too. Yeah. 
Now, now okay. I can't see Wendy. I followed your advice while you're saying it. Now I'm blind. <laughs> Ryan, in no part of that did I say stare at the sun. I think okay. you need to listen. But you and did. You just did now. So now I'm confused. Are we supposed to? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you too. Come on, children. All right. Okay. This time. <laughs> so, what are some of the things that can affect the dynamic range of our camera? Well, those photo sites that we've talked about several times as we've gone through this sensor information journey, they're like little buckets. And if those buckets get completely filled up with photons, then there's so much information there that it's just going to read as white, right? That electric signal that gets sent from the sensor to our microprocessor is just saying, we're full, it's white. And if there's not enough information in that bucket, then it's going to just read as completely black. And our camera, based on what settings we have it set at, what's going to completely fill that bucket or have it empty differs. And that's where learning how to use your camera in manual mode and knowing what those different things do can help you understand how to set that exposure properly. But if you're looking at something like your sunset, Either way, you're going to be full or too empty in part of your image. Another thing that can affect the quality of dynamic range of your camera is how efficient is it in reading those proton signals? And that's an advantage and something that we've come with over the years of sensor development. And the reason why you have different costs in different sensors is some are more efficient in taking and reading what that signal is and sending it off to our processor. There's some that will gather the, the noise or the, the signal will be noisy and that will be the, the white noise that you get, the graininess that you will get in your image is inefficiency in that sensor data. So if it's really noisy in your blacks, it's really going to affect your overall dynamic range. And then how is it processed in your microprocessor? What is the quality of that? What is the quality of the instructions? What does it tell it to do with all of that data that comes in? And bit depth is part of that. So if you'll look at the settings on your camera, you'll see some will allow you to change the bit depth. And in that, it's actually helping to what it's saving the color data as. So the more bits, the better. I think the highest you can get on most cameras is about 14 bits, even though if you're working in a computer program like GIMP, you can save things in 16 bits. So it really depends on what you're working with and how much color information can be saved there. But your average camera, you'll find about 12 to 14 bit savings. And that affects the overall dynamic range. Maybe your sensor can capture more dynamic range, but in the end, it's not able to save all of that information, even though you're using a raw format. So this is a major issue you see in, well, most of the cameras at my level that I buy is they take great pictures when the lighting's good, but anytime the lighting starts to be dim or semi-dark outside, the pictures just show up like this grainy mess. So that's part of the ISO adjustment. So what that means is it's making your sensor more sensitive. So it's taking that small charge that it's getting and it's amplifying it more. And that's causing noise because the signal is not as clean as it was if you're at 
your home ISO. For most cameras, that's ISO 100. And the higher you go, the more sensitive you're making that sensor or the more you're amplifying that proton signal that hits it and that causes noise levels. Gotcha. Now, why not just go to the highest ISO level all the time? What happens then? Well, it depends on what you're working with. If you're on the highest ISO level all the time, then in just the standard room you're in, everything will be way too bright and you'll automatically fill those photosite buckets all the way up. They'll be overflowed and you have just a white image. Got it. So, so what do you think? I thought I found the workaround. (laughs) (laughs) So would you say that it's more about like, if you can just don't, don't take photos at dark and like darken positionings or like try to position extra lights so that you can at least, you know, uh, enhance the the subject that you're you're photographing it really depends on what the point of the image is if i'm taking say a moon picture i don't want to add lights to that i want to put it on a tripod and extend the length of my exposure and leave my iso at 100 leave my sensor at the home sensitivity but just increase that exposure time which is really easy to do on a tripod Let's say I'm taking a portrait, then that's time that I would add light, I would add whiteboards or whatever I needed to so that I could still hold my camera, get a nice crisp image, but have enough light on my sense on my subject. Well, I was taking pictures of my husband as he was doing a welding project around the house this last weekend. I don't care that my sky was blown out. Because the subject was my husband, my focal point was him and the welding. So it didn't matter that the sky was blown out. It's okay in some instances for your blacks to go or shadows to go all the way black. It's okay sometimes for things to get blown out. It doesn't mean that everything needs to constantly be in that super HDR image where everything is overly sharpened and extra crisp and everything is super bright. It's all right for things to get one way or the other, depending on what the focus of our image is. See, Michael, my pictures aren't junk. (laughs) Just because they're all out of focus. You're purposefully blowing out stuff so you can make sure your shadows go black or something. Yeah, Yeah, that's his art. I think think what (laughs) what Wendy just told us is that since we can't stare at the sun, we totally can stare at the moon. So we've learned something. Nice. There you go. We've learned something today. (laughs) Absolutely stare at the moon. <laughs> That's all you guys got out of this. Then I feel horrible. Well, our audience is smarter than us, thankfully. So they actually got. I'm kidding. Else. It was very interesting, and it, uh, and I did learn that you know it, I don't have to worry about trying to find the sweet spot because you can basically make any like depending on what you're doing, you can adjust anything to be optimal for what the actual t- subject is. Yeah. Well, there's no one solid rule that it doesn't have to be, oh my gosh, this picture is horrible because such and such is blown out. It really depends on what your subject is, what the goal of the image is. And that's part of this being an art and images being a creation process. Right. When I take a sunset picture, I usually take three different versions of that image. I will get the sky with the correct exposure I will get the ground with the correct exposure and I'll get one that's kind of in between the two. And that's where I go software side and blend those images together to make a more realistic what I actually saw because my camera can't capture that. So there's room for that too. 
bracketing multiple exposures. And then there's the times where it's totally okay for the sky to be blown out because it's not my focus. I never thought about that, that you could, because you have different parts, they're just going to be out of focus, merge those together to create the perfect photo. I've done that with macro photography too. It's really cool to do with um, bugs. I've done one with a caterpillar that was really strange looking. And so I did a series of, I think it was 50 different shots. So they're all really teeny tiny slivers of super focused macro shots and then blend them, them together in the end to have the caterpillar totally in focus. Okay, so I have to tell you something. I, I hate caterpillars and I, I hate millipedes. So you completely lost me there. Can we go back <laughs> to sunsets and get away from the disgusting bugs? No, we should be taking oh. pictures of them. You stomp on them. Bugs wow. are awesome. No, because they bugs. become butterflies. Uh-oh. Come hang out in our Some garden, Ryan, and we'll take pictures of bugs. You'll find me at the edge of the garden with my camera and a micro lens taking the spiders. I love it. I'm so sorry. We'll find you help. (laughs) (laughs) So that's it. Our 12th episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Thank you all for listening to the show that brings you your bi-weekly tech fix. And if you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all the great content on Destination Linux Network. Head to DestinationLinux.network. Do it to check out all the great products, YouTube partners available There is so much content to fill your brains with. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow. We hope you enjoyed this show, and we'll see you next week for another dynamically ranged staring at the sun, wait, not staring at the sun episode of Hardware Addicts. Just the moon. (laughs) Just the moon. It's just the moon. Just Just the the moon. moon. Stare at the moon. Yes. Look how at the moon, Michael. Absolutely. (laughs) 